Uh, Genesis chapter 39. Now, I know some of you are thinking, uh, who is this guy in a suit up here, right? And like, <laughs> you don't recognize me. And I do wear this about three times a year. And so I, I have it. Uh, I actually wear this on Easter. My mom gets the tie on Mother's Day, and that's the deal. So uh, once in a while, you'll see me not in jeans, and this is one of the time. Uh, it, wow, what a great Sunday. I love Easter, celebrating the resurrection, the victory of Jesus. He defeated death, and, and we are going to do that today out of Genesis chapter 39 in our, as we continue our series in Joseph. Now, many pastors on Easter Sunday feel this push because they recognize that in churches all across America, there are people in church on Easter that only probably come once a year. And because the resurrection is the linchpin of our faith, without the resurrection, Paul says our faith is in vain. It doesn't work. And so because of that, a lot of pastors spend their Easter Sunday defending the resurrection, proving that the resurrection is true. The problem is uh, a lot of those people still only come <laughs> once a year. And so there are a lot of people across this country, the only sermon they've ever heard is defending the resurrection. And so today I want to do something a little bit different. If you would bear with me, uh, I, I want to talk about the implications of the resurrection. I want to assume that the resurrection is true. You might be here today and you may not believe that, and that's okay. We are so glad you're here today. E even if you're a crazy Aunt Sally drug you to church, we're glad you're here today. And so just if you would tolerate me, you know, kind of come along with me on this journey and just assume that the resurrection is true. If you make that assumption, I think you'll see today that this resurrection actually will change your life. And so uh, the text with which I've chosen to talk about the implications of the resurrection is an odd one. It's Genesis chapter 39, the story of, of Potiphar's wife trying to seduce Joseph. And I'm pretty sure that uh, this has been very infrequently preached on Easter Sunday across this country. It's not a normal text. But Jesus said, all of the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament points to me. We can see Jesus in all of this. And so what I'm trying to do today and hope that, that you'll see is that as Joseph learned this truth about God, that he is near, I'm going to show you how that works itself out and in Jesus' life and how because of the resurrection then, you and I can apply this truth to our own lives. And so this is what I'm going to try to do Providentially, God landed us in Genesis 39 on Easter Sunday in our series, and uh, I believe in his providence, so we're going to run with it. So Genesis chapter 39. Now, last week we started this series, and uh, what we saw last week is that God's sovereign hand is always working through our bad decisions and evil plans to accomplish his will. And his will is for our good and his glory. And so we're seeing this theme. Every time I preach in this series, I'm going to throw this verse from the end of the story, I'll give you a preview, uh, right in front of you, because it forms the theme of the entire account of Joseph's lives. It's from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph says to his brothers, who are really worried that he's going to kind of come after them, uh, he says to his brothers this, listen, as for you, you meant evil against me. 
But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You intended it for evil. God took that and intended it for good. This idea of God's sovereign working in our life is what the entire story of Joseph is about. And so what we're going to see today is God providentially lands Joseph in slavery in Potiphar's house. And we're going to see that in light of this fact, God was still near to Joseph. He lives in light of the nearness of God. When my eldest son, Nicholas, was in third grade, that was a long time ago, uh, he was still a big kid even then. I remember walking into class the first day, and as a third grader, he was taller than his teacher. And I remember saying to Nicholas, you are not allowed to pick up your teacher, you know? Like, don't do that. Anyway, one, somewhere in the middle of the year, he comes home one day, and he says, uh, Dad, I need an empty paper towel roll. Like, you know, the little cardboard thing at the end. And so I fished one out of the, the trash for him and, and gave it to him, and he said, thanks. And uh, I said, what are you doing? He goes, well, we have been given an assignment to create a replica of any structure in Washington, D.C. Uh, okay. And our teacher told us I'm supposed to do it alone and not have any help from my parents. Okay. So he grabs a paper towel roll. He finds in his toys somewhere this little tiny pyramid, and he takes Elmer's glue, and he glues it on top of the paper towel roll, and he goes... The Washington Monument. <laughs> he's like, and he, you know, he's so proud of himself. It's like four minutes flat, you suckers. All of you, you know, I got it done. And he puts it on there. So, okay, we go on. And, and uh, a few months later, it's time for conferences. And so Clarissa and I walk into the school. We go into the room and all of the projects are on display. And Nicholas's paper towel roll with the pyramid glued to the top sits right next to something that looked a lot like this. <laughs> because a third grader did that all by herself, right? <laughs> She's a prodigy. It's amazing. And I, we just kind of scoffed because all up and down the tables, none of the parents had listened to this. They helped all their kids. In fact, you looked at these projects and, and you thought, I think this parent somewhere along the line looked at this thing and just said, hey, to their third grade, get out of the way. Let me just finish this for you, right? Oddly enough, this story, I think, sets the table for what I want to talk about today. Because just as that parent was very near to their child as they were creating the White House, right? That's an, an odd way of getting us to the point that God is very near to us just like that. Just like that parent. And he's near to us even when it seems that he's not. He's near to us even when it seems he's not. I have two things that I want to talk to you about today from Genesis chapter 39. What Joseph's story can teach us about God's nearness. And the first one is this. God is near precisely when it seems he's not. God is near to us precisely when it seems he's not. Now, if you remember from last week, if you were here, if you weren't, let me just catch you up to speed. Joseph is raised in a house with his father Jacob. He has 11 brothers. And in that whole scenario, Jacob loved his son Joseph the most. We talked about how that's a terrible idea as a parent, but Jacob did it nonetheless. And Joseph, because of this, made some terrible decisions to where uh, it, it resulted in this idea that Joseph was elevated to kind of upper management and his brothers 
were left out in the field to just do the work. Joseph's brothers, the text tells us, hated him. They hated him so much that they wanted to kill him. That's how much they hated him. I have wanted to kill my brother at times growing up, (laughs) but I, I didn't hate him like that, not like they wanted to kill him. And so instead of killing him, they sold him. They sold him to a band of slave traders on their way down to Egypt. And then they told their dad, Joseph died by the hand of a wild animal. And so Joseph finds himself in Egypt. These guys take him down to Egypt. Look, this is where our story picks up today. Genesis 39.1. Then Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Okay, who is this guy Potiphar? Well, he's a a pretty important guy. Later we find out that his house actually housed the, a special prison for the king's prisoner. Potiphar was some kind of consultant to the pharaoh. He had an important role, and he was clearly very wealthy because Potiphar had enough money to purchase not just Joseph, but a whole household of servants. A, a slave cost two years' wages for the average worker. So Joseph, uh, Potiphar rather, was loaded He was enough money and he had influence because he had influence in Pharaoh's court. And so Joseph arrives in Egypt. And if you can imagine, this must have been a very low point for Joseph. Joseph had gone from being upper management to being his father's favorite, to being loved more than it seemed than all the other brothers. When his brothers were out in the field, he was back hanging out at home. He was living the good life. Joseph had all, he had... uh, gradually risen in influence and power and comfort. And now his dreams for greatness had been all dashed. I mean, he went from this trajectory to the trajectory of being a slave. And this must have been a low point. Where is God in this? As he's shackled in a cart being drug off to Egypt. Where's God? In that. Where's the God that appeared to my great-grandfather and my grandfather and my father? I've heard the stories. Where is this God? You and I can relate to Joseph, can't we? Can't we? Because we know what it's like to have a life trajectory. You and I know what it's like to have plans for our lives. Think back to the time when you were younger. Maybe you were in high school and had a plan for your life. Maybe you were in college and had a plan for your life. You had a plan for where you were going. And as so often is the case, very few of us end up on where we imagined we would. Very few of us end up there. We had a plan, and it usually doesn't go as we want. Joseph was destined for greatness. Where's God now? So we're going to learn God is near. Precisely when it seems he's not. Look at verse 2. Right away... Moses, as he's writing this down, gives us an important phrase. He says, at Joseph's lowest point, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. That phrase is an awesome phrase. That word with uh, has the idea of with the help of or side by side or near. It's that word that means near. The Lord was near Joseph. He was close to him. He was close to him. That phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, is only used four times in Joseph's entire story. 
And all four of them are right here in Genesis chapter 39. We only get four uses of it, and they're all right here. Because of Joseph's connection to the covenant, the Lord was with him in the same way as he was with his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather. And no mistake, at, at Joseph's lowest point, God was near. So, so look what it says. The Lord was with Joseph, verse 2, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him, there's that phrase a second time, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes, and he became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Everything he owned. There's two key words here as the result of God's nearness. We see that God gave Joseph success and favor in his master's eyes. So the result at the very lowest point, the Lord was with Joseph and he gave him success and favor in other people's eyes. Now we have to be careful because the temptation is to just directly apply this with our lives. And of course, you could make, an, you could make a connection here. Well, if the Lord is with me, I should prosper, be successful, and everybody should love me, right? Like that, that would seem to be the natural application. If the Lord's with me, of course, the flip side of that then is if I'm not successful and everyone doesn't like me, God's not with me. That is a dangerous thing to assume. You see, this is not a formula. The Bible is not a formula. This is, is, not, this is the author, Moses, telling us that God was near to Joseph and he has not drawn these implications. He's just fleshing out this truth for us because this is what's necessary for God to take evil and turn it into good. And that's what he's about to do. Success here is necessary for the greater purpose of God. God's nearness, God's nearness doesn't mean a formula for us. If God is near, it doesn't necessarily mean you will be successful and loved by everybody. Because that's not how it worked for Jesus, did it? It didn't work that way for Jesus, the Son of God, who grew up his whole life learning, growing in intimacy and connection with his Father, with the Father. Look what it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. It says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. There was this growing awareness. There was this growing awareness of, of favor of God in his life. And Jesus had the Father's presence with him in a way like no one else in the history of humanity. So Jesus had the Father with him but it didn't necessarily turn out in wild success for him, didn't it? did it? Because, I mean, he lived his whole life perfectly submitted to the Father, and now what? Good Friday, he's hanging on the cross. I mean, it appears that the Father had abandoned Jesus. He lost, it seemed, everything. He lost his friends. His disciples deserted him. His friends disappeared. One of his disciples betrayed him. He had nobody. We see a few figures at the bottom of the cross, his mother and some others, John, and that's about all he has. And he's dead and he's in a grave. And it didn't seem to work out that way for him. 
He cried out, in fact, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he breathed his last and he died, his lifeless body placed in a tomb. But just like the father hadn't abandoned Joseph, so the father hadn't abandoned his son Jesus. God is near. Precisely when it seemed he's not. Precisely. At the moment that Jesus, his body is in the grave, in a cold, dark cave, and as the stench of death hung in the air, and as the hordes of demons cheered and jeered and celebrated their victory over God, and it seemed that darkness had won. It was at that moment when it seemed that God the Father was farthest from God the Son. But that was the moment when life broke through. In that dark, cold, damp cave, a dead heart, lifeless in the chest of a body, began beating. Blood began to pump through his veins. His lungs expanded as the first breath of its kind filled his lungs with newness of life and his eyes opened and Jesus had won. And just when it seemed that the father was farthest, he was the nearest. You see, the father wasn't done with Jesus and Jesus isn't done with you and me. Precisely when it seems that God is the farthest, he is the nearest. You and I understand what it's like to feel far from God. We, at least to some degree, understand what Joseph felt when those shackles were placed on his wrists, when he was thrown in the cart and drugged down to Egypt. We too have wondered, where is God? Maybe you've never even verbalized it, but you've wondered, where is God? If Joseph teaches us anything, it's that God is near. If the resurrection teaches us anything, it's that God is near. Because here we find this beautiful hope of the gospel. That we bring all of our sin, all of our sin and all of our pain and all of our brokenness and all of our mistakes and all of the horrible things we've done and we bring them to the foot of the cross where the blood of Jesus wipes them clean and says, here's a new slate you stand in nearness to God. And when we believe that, we find forgiveness. And then we believe that he rose from the dead, bringing newness of life to us. And just as Jesus' lungs filled with the newness of life in that first breath in that cave, so you and I experience that kind of life. Just when it seems that God is far, he is near. Potiphar grows very fond of Joseph. If we go back to the story, Potiphar clearly recognizes that Joseph is skilled and that God's presence is with him. Is with him. And Potiphar grows to love Joseph. He keeps putting Joseph in charge of stuff. He gives him more and more responsibility and, and things seem to be going great. And he's in charge of all Potiphar's possessions and all of the servants and all of his money and the, his family business, whatever that was. Joseph is in charge of it all. Potiphar just goes, here you go. And it seems like, wow, things are going pretty well now. 
I mean, yeah, it stinks. You're a slave. But if you're going to be a slave, you might as well be the head one, right? Like things are in the right trajectory and he's living in a nice palace and all is well. Or is it? Because it's all about to change. What can Joseph's story teach us about nearness? Well, it teaches us that God is near precisely when it seems he's not. And now, as Joseph's story is going to take a turn for the worst again, we're going to see the second thing I wanted you to know today. The second thing is this. We can choose to live in light of God's nearness. We can choose to live in the light of God's nearness. That's what Joseph did. Knowing that God is near should change the way we live. It does for Joseph. Now, all right, so here's the story, right? Maybe you heard it. Maybe you know it. Joseph is one attractive dude. He's somewhere between 18 and 24 years old. You know, he's got it going on. And Potiphar's wife notices this. And she's like, oh, yes, he will be mine, you know? And so she's like super seductress. I don't know whether she was a cougar or what was going on here, right? I don't know if she was a hottie or not. I got nothing. I don't know. But I know that for Joseph, this was a serious temptation. Look, look at what happens, right? The, the Bible uses a euphemism here. Uh, the Bible does that all the time. But, you know, she's like, hey, come on, Joseph. Uh, let's come back to my room and, you know, let's get it on here. And, and, and Joseph says, look at what he says in verse 8. She says, come to bed with me. Verse 8. But Joseph refused. He says, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you, because you're his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against? Here comes God. Think about the temptation for Joseph. He's a young man. You know, he's got hormones rushing through his body. You know, and, and, and you know, he's like, he could use any excuse probably in the book to do this. She's her boss, right? Uh, and, you know, the pressure on him must have been incredible. He could have come up with any excuse in the book to let this happen. But he honored his boss, but above all, he honored God. Because Joseph recognized what's true. All sin is ultimately sin against God. You might not think that way. You might not feel that, feel that way. You know, when you cheat on your taxes, you might think, well, ultimately, I guess I'm just sinning against the government. Who cares, right? All sin is sin against God. And Joseph recognizes that. And he could have justified it. After all, he did get the shaft. He got sold into slavery. He's like, I have gotten a rotten deal in life. I, I earned this one, right? Like, I, I earned this one. I can just do this. I got a rotten deal. But he doesn't. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't make excuses. He does what he knows is right. You and I love to make excuses, and I love to laugh at people who make excuses. One of my favorite websites out there is the uh, Not My Job website. They uh, rank the top 20 Not My Job photos uh, that always bring me great joy. And so there's some kind of work environment where, you know, you, you engage with someone who clearly said that was not my job. Like, for instance, putting the stall door on the bathroom toilet, right? Like, not my job. Guys, if you ever walk into the ba that bathroom, that'll make you scratch your head. 
So clearly, I think that's funnier than you do. Here's another great one. Uh, hey, go put the shirt on the mannequin, <laughs> you know? Not my job, right? Or this one, right? Like, you know, let's hang the signs over the bathrooms. <laughs> like, I'm so confused. Yeah, there's some uh, engineering project there that, uh, not my job, right? And then my favorite. <laughs> not my job. You guys, we can make excuses all day long. We have a list of them. We might have gotten a rotten deal in life, and we make excuses. We've earned it. But Joseph refused to find an excuse. He knew that God was near, and he'd heard the stories from his father, from his great-grandfather, about his, his, his grandfather Isaac, his dad. He's heard about this covenant relationship that God has, that God is near, and he's with them. And Joseph lived with this, and it changed the way he lived. Even when God seemed far, he chose to live in the light of God's nearness. He knew it. Kent Hughes is one of my favorite uh, preachers, and, and he said this, the grand deterrent to Joseph's sinning was the awareness that God sees all and that a sin that no one knows about committed behind locked doors in a dark room is actually done in the presence of a holy God. Joseph believed this. He knew that God was near. He chose to live in light of God's nearness. God's presence affected everything he did. There are times in life, you guys, when things are going well and we feel the very nearness of God. If you are a follower of Christ, you know what I'm talking about. You had a moment in your life where God just felt really near. Sometimes we, we can remember those things geographically, like if you were in a certain place, or sometimes by a certain circumstance in life, and you think, oh yeah, I remember when that time God felt really near. When God feels near, it rarely stays that way. Because we have an enemy who's trying to destroy the works of God. When difficult things come our way, when God feels a million miles away, he might feel far, but we have to engage with the truth that he's not far. And then we live our lives in light of his nearness. He knows. He's, he, it's not just God's up on, on, on high and looking through you know, binoculars and, ha ha, I saw that. He's with us. His very presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit is near and we choose to live in light of God's nearness, even when it, we don't feel it. Well, the story continues. Joseph one day walks into his job, into the palace, into the, this palatial house. It's probably a big place. And he comes in and he realizes something's weird. There's no activity in the house. There's no servants. It's empty. And of course, Potiphar's wife has, uh, has set all this up. She sent all the servants out. She's got them alone. She comes out in some, you know, I, I imagine some very seductive attire. And, and she's like, oh, yeah, now is the time, right? Now is the time. And Joseph is caught, like, what do I do? What do I do? Oh, no. And so she grabs him by his robe. And remember, jo Joseph and robes, man, they get him in trouble. Like he had the, the robe of many colors, and now he's got this one, right? And so he... <laughs> She grabs onto it, and he's like, run away, you know? 
He's like, I'm not doing this. And so he runs and, and, you know, she ends up holding his robe. I like to imagine that Joseph is running across the palace grounds in nothing but his boxer briefs, right? Uh, that's probably not the way it happened. It was probably just an outer cloak and he had his under cloak on. But still, nonetheless, it's more fun to imagine him streaking off, you know, so half naked across the courtyard doing what he needed to do to run away. And so this whole thing didn't work the way Potiphar's wife wanted it to. And she's embarrassed. And she's holding his robe in her hand and sees an opportunity. She's going to bring this slave down. And so she tells all the servants, you know, she, she brings all the servants in the house together and she tells them that Joseph tried to take advantage of her. And then she brings her husband in and she says that, look, I'm holding the evidence and she brings the evidence to him and says, look what happened. And Potiphar is now in a very, very hard position because Potiphar's wife knows she has now trapped her husband. Look at verse 19. When his master, Potiphar, heard the story his wife told him saying, this is how your slave, you like that? Your slave treated me. Potiphar burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Potiphar was ticked. Who was he mad at? At first glance, you'd think he burned with anger against Joseph. I don't think so. Because if he was mad at Joseph, he could have had him executed and should have had him executed immediately. Potiphar knew Joseph. Potiphar had entrusted Joseph. He had given him his entire house. Joseph was not only a trusted person, he was probably his friend. But Potiphar also knew, and he knew his wife, right? Like, he's no dummy. He knows what kind of woman she is. And so he does the only thing he can do, because his family honor is at stake. He throws him in the king's prison, which we find out in chapter 40, is in his, on his very grounds, his palace grounds. And he's like, this is the best place I can think of to put Joseph. Instead of having him executed, he does that. And this prison is on his own property, and he's going to say, I'm going to do the best I can for Joseph. But look at the turn. Things have been going so well. I mean, they had been going so well for him, and now he finds himself in prison. And again, where was God? What happened to the success and favor? Where was that? Well, what's next? We see ourselves return to the very place we started. I told you I had two things to say to you. I love what Moses does. He bookends all his stories oftentimes. And he bookends this account of Joseph's life. He starts with a, a story, uh, with the account of Joseph coming off of slavery and rising. And he ends with this account of Joseph now in prison at a very low point. And he puts this all together. And we return to this point that Joseph, sitting in jail now, knows that God is near precisely when it seems he's not. Look at the, how, how the account ends of the chapter. It start, it's the exact same thing. But while Joseph was there in prison, verse 20, you're going to hear the same words again. Why is he in prison? The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor. There's the same words in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph, same word, in charge of all those held in the prison 
and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because, here it is, the Lord was with Joseph and he gave him success in whatever he did. Same thing, two times the Lord was with him. Same thing, favor in the eyes of his boss. Same thing, success in whatever he did. The same thing happens. If any of you like English literature, you're going to geek out at this next thing I'm going to show you and, and just tolerate if you hate it. But there's a storyline to this story. There's a, and uh, if you look at the storyline in Joseph, you'll see this recurring theme. Joseph is elevated, a point of crisis happens, and he's dropped back down. So he's elevated by his father to the status of the best child, and a crisis happens. His brothers get mad and sell him into slavery. And the storyline continues to a low point. He's a slave. But he's elevated by Potiphar and Potiphar's house till he gets thing, and things go poorly. There's a point of crisis. He gets thrown in jail. And we're back down to a very low place. And then we see Joseph elevated by the warden. And there's going to be another crisis next Sunday that we'll read about. And this happens over. And this is the theme, the storyline of Joseph. Just when it seems to be going great, something terrible happens and he gets drugged to a very low place. And it's at these low places we see our phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. It's at the lowest point. That's when Moses tells us the Lord was with him. The resurrection has the same story. It's at the lowest place when Jesus is in the grave, when it feels like the story is lost, when the disciples are hopeless, when everyone was, is scattered and going, how did we get this so wrong? Was the very moment where the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. The very moment when it seems terrible, it's not. And there's this great reversal. The resurrection changed everything. Jesus later said before he ascended to the heaven, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You see, the truth here that we see is the resurrection is game changing. Jesus changes everything. He's near when it seems he's not. And we can live in the light of this cross and live in light of this resurrection. We can live as victors. You and I have lived for way too long wondering why our life didn't turn out like we wanted it to. We have lived way too long like that. The resurrection is true if it is. We've won. And now we've got to live like it. How then do we live? I want to close with three, three quick thoughts of how we live in light of this. And we've just watched these work themselves out in Joseph's life. If the resurrection is true and God is near, we first of all, as Joseph learned, can live with integrity. Joseph could say no to temptation because he was aware of God's nearness. You, can, I, you and I can live with integrity because we know who wins. We don't have to quit. You and I can live like that. You have opportunities every day in your life to not live like that. You have a culture that live in a culture, in a world, in a workplace that doesn't understand why you would live with integrity, but you know that the risen Christ is with you wherever you go, and it's his opinion that matters. He is the one. And we live with integrity because of his nearness, just like Joseph. 
The second thing that I think from this account that we learn about the, the living in light of the resurrection is, one, we, we live with integrity, but two, we live with confidence. You have on your side the risen victorious Christ. He defeated the worst enemy that has ever existed in the history of the universe. And he brought him down. And you have this guy on your team. When I was a kid, uh, I've told you this before, but I was horrible at basketball, and I'm still horrible at basketball to this day. All right, baseball was my thing, basketball. I remember in fifth grade, my dad made me go out for basketball. On my fifth grade team, I scored one point all season. One whole point. Uh, they, would, they would never pass me the ball. And if I did get the ball, they'd say, don't shoot, don't shoot. And at the, towards the end of the season, I got sick and tired of it. And I said, I'm going to shoot. And of course I missed, but I got fouled. And I went to the line and I made one of two free throws. It was incredible. One point all season. The highlight. I, listen, I, I had no business on the basketball court. Later on in college, it would end up occasionally that I would get in uh, so with some of my friends, they'd want to play basketball, and I'd get in a pickup game. And, uh, and you know, I always dreaded it, but I, I always knew that my, if my friend Jim was on my team, I was okay. Jim was a great basketball player. He had played varsity basketball in high school, and, and uh, he was the guy, he, the guy that owned the court, right? He could drive the lane. He could shoot. He had a great outside shot. Like, there was just no stopping it. And give it to Jim, and hey, we'll be great, Right? And I knew in that situation that I had one job on those teams. I had fouls to give, and I was to use my fouls, right? And, I knew, and it was great. I'd just sit down under the basket, and I'd just foul anyone who came in the middle. It was fantastic. And I'd do my job. And I had confidence because I knew my friend could play ball, and he had it. Friends, you have the risen Christ on your side. And you can live with all the confidence in the world because he's on your team. For the sake of the risen Christ, we do what we do best, and we do it with confidence. So we live with integrity, we live with confidence, and then the last thing is we live with joy. We live with joy because of the resurrection. God is near. This is a wild celebration. I always try to on, on this, after the Good Friday service on, on Saturday before we celebrate the resurrection, I, I try to have a very somber spirit on Saturday as I think about what the disciples felt when Jesus' body was in the tomb. I have a very somber period. It's called, some people call it Silent Saturday. It's a time to just calm your spirit and identify. And the beauty of a somber spirit on Saturday is the joy on Sunday. He's victorious. Like, this is the craziest celebration. This is the biggest victory ever. You guys know, like, you know I'm a Cubs fan, and you know last November I had cause to celebrate, right? And I remember sitting there at one in the morning, or whatever time it was, watching this game that had been rain-delayed, and the Cubs came back, and I remember the final out. And Chris Bryant is at third base, and the grass is wet, and they hit the ball, and I'm pretty sure that he's going to slip and, and throw the ball into the stands, and we're going to go into extra innings. And uh, Chris Bryant picks up that ball, and he throws it to first for the final out. 
they want that. Like my whole life I've been waiting for this. I got up and screamed, Nicholas recorded me. I hope that never gets out, but I think it will now. And uh, I was screaming, like they won. I couldn't believe it. I took my kids and I shook them and I was just jumping up and down going crazy. And that is a stupid game with a ball. And we have the risen Christ, the greatest victory ever, and we can live with joy no matter how hard it gets. Because he won. He defeated death. And we are conquerors with him. We have this. The hope of the nearness of God. We are more than conquerors. And that is how we're going to close our service today. Our worship team is going to come and we're going to sing about being victorious and joyful and conquerors with Christ. Would you pray with me as they come? Heavenly Father, Thank you that your spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Thank you that we have this victory in Christ. Thank you that we have this joy and confidence and we can live with integrity in light of the cross. Thank you that even when it seems you're far, you are near and we can live joyfully in this way. We love you. We celebrate your victory. In Jesus' name, amen.